Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. Increment 161, a meditation on the promises, part 2. Hebrews 6.11 to 15, our text from which we depart into this meditation. We're in the middle of it now, and this is part 2. I'll read the relevant text. Hebrews 6.11 through 15 and we desire for each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence toward the plenary manifestation of hope until the end so that in the final analysis you will not be lazy but imitators of those who through faith and patience experience the promises for example when god made a promise to abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying I will most certainly bless you and multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise, meaning he obtained Isaac, the nascent but not complete fulfillment of the promise. Father, we pray that you'll continue to allow our meditation of our heart to be acceptable to you, And may the words of my mouth also be acceptable as they are aligned with the scriptures of truth. And I ask you this as the God of truth, in Jesus' name, amen. We read in the New Testament of the promise itself, singular, or the promises, plural, themselves. We read of promises given and promises received. We read of promises had and held and embraced until hope of their fulfillment becomes completely assured expectation. So assured that the hoped-for thing is actually present in one's innermost being. Promises fulfilled or promises inherited, partially or inchoately, as in the case of Isaac. We hear of promises fulfilled and experienced completely as in the case of an innumerable company of redeemed and thus the eschatological destiny of human society in Uranopolis. The promises can be experienced in hope as hope. This is a thesis in our meditation. The promises can be experienced in hope as hope. Galatians 5.5 says, We, through the Spirit, by faith, wait for the hope. And that means the realization of the hope of righteousness. To wait for the hope of righteousness chimes with Abraham, after waiting patiently, he obtained the promise. To wait for the hope of righteousness is to wait with patience for the rectification of all things, the culmination of God's saving act mediated through Jesus and brought to experiential fullness by the Holy Spirit. It is to wait for the day of God, the day of eternity. Promises can be seen at a distance and saluted from afar, or they can be welcomed into the homes of our hearts. They can be received, inherited, obtained, had, and held. They can be experienced in ever-increasing expectation 
or they can be enjoyed in their final and total fulfillment. The promises constitute things hoped for. They can also signify things attained. But when attained, they are no longer the objects of hope, but the completion and total realization of hope. The promises can be experienced in hope because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, also known as the promised Holy Spirit, the promise of my Father, as Jesus put it, Luke 24, 49. The promise of the Spirit came to all the nations and Gentiles, Galatians 3.14, as well as Israel, Ephesians 1.13. It is the Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29, who causes this hope in us to increase and to intensify to the fullest possible assurance in this life. Again, we through the Spirit emphasize through the Spirit emphasize the spirit we through the spirit wait for the hope of universal rectification by faith when all things are finally set right and when there is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness resides comfortably and permanently at home second peter 3:13 where the victims of history will have justice that they lacked in this world and the perpetrators of violence and oppression will be given righteousness, that which they lacked in this world. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The things hoped for are already in and with the believer. That's why there's peace and joy in the believing, while hope is caused to overflow by the power of the Spirit. Romans 15, 13 becomes such a central and fundamental verse for us. To have faith is to have the reality of what is hoped for. Consequently, it's to have an indescribable joy and an imperturbable peace, which are the characteristics of the kingdom of God in the center of our being. You say, why don't most Christians, and I could ask for myself, why don't I experience this unspeakable joy and this imperturbable peace, undisturbable peace, all the time? The reason is I never really always, or I don't say never, I rarely live in the center of my being. And rarely do we. The more we live in the center of our being, we, the more we live in the kingdom of God that is within us and in the center of our being. And so in the believing, more and more our lives can be characterized, characterized by the joy and peace that are features of the kingdom of God along with righteousness, which is the saving act of God. So consequently, to have faith is to have the reality of what is hoped for and it's to have an indescribable joy and an imperturbable peace, characteristics of the kingdom of God in the center of our being. It is to have and even to experience the kingdom of God within us. 
Luke 17, 21. Things hoped for, Hebrews 11, 1, are precisely things promised by God who is faithful. To have faith as the substance and assurance of things hoped for is to experience the promises in hope before we actually experience their eschatological completion in future world. So I hope now, by now, you're observing the link between hope and the promises, the anatomy of hope and our meditation on the promises. As hope can increase in us until it becomes full and unshakable assurance, so the promises can be experienced by us in ever-increasing measure in hope. Abraham received the promises and enjoyed them in hope in expectation. He also obtained the promise in an inchoate form. Inchoate. That's a word we don't often use, but it's an important one for us here. Inchoate. That means embryonic or initial form or the very early form of a promise. And so... Abraham received the promises and enjoyed them in hope. He also obtained the promise in an inchoate form when he received Isaac through his birth following a supernatural conception in Sarah. He didn't receive the literal innumerable company of redeemed. He received the little baby. But in that baby is the inchoate, nascent, embryonic promise of that innumerable seed because in Isaac was Christ, as we'll see. So Abraham received the promise. He also obtained the promise in an inchoate form when he received Isaac through his birth following a supernatural conception in Sarah. But later, even more importantly, figuratively speaking, he received Isaac from the dead through resurrection. In this world, Abraham obtained the promise in its embryonic form but did not obtain or see it fulfilled in its eschatological finality with an innumerable progeny and with all the nations being blessed in his seed, which is Christ. Abraham did see his day. Abraham saw my day, Jesus said in John 8. But he did not in this world experience the fulfillment, the ultimate eschatological fulfillment of the promised seed. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promises only inchoately. Christ is the seed who is called in Isaac. Christ is the seed who is called in Isaac. In Isaac, your seed will be called. Genesis twenty-one twelve in whom all the nations will be blessed and in whom there is to be an innumerable progeny 
that will populate future worlds. When Abraham received Isaac, he received what was promised in one sense. For in Isaac was the innumerable seed, in Isaac. We have this kind of argument or this kind of reasoning, let's say, in Hebrews elsewhere. As Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek blessed him, so Christ Jesus was in the loins of Isaac when Abraham received him from the dead, figuratively speaking. Now, when we say figuratively, we don't mean unimportantly. We mean very importantly, but figuratively. In Isaac was the seed who would be called the messenger of the great intention, according to the Septuagint of Isaiah 9.5. In Isaac was the seed who would be the embodiment of the mystery of God's intention to consummate or complete creation with redemption. Experiencing the promises in hope is the same as having faith as the substance of things hoped for. To have faith as a mustard seed is to have a tiny expectation of things hoped for and a small experiences of the promise or the promises in hope. To have an increased faith or great faith is to have a great experience of the promises in hope in the deeply assured anticipation of their realization, their complete eschatological fulfillment. Those who inherit the promises phrase we have in Hebrews 6.12, which appears in the Greek in your written version of this, those who inherit the promises are exemplified in Abraham as, quote, the one who had the promises, which you'll see that phrase in the Greek in Hebrews 7.6 in your written form of this message. All the people in Hebrews 11.13, who, quote, confess themselves to be foreigners and resident aliens on the earth, died without receiving the promises. Nevertheless, they saw them, that is, they saw their fulfillment from a distance. As Abraham saw my day, as Moses saw the invisible and the fulfillment of the promise in Christ, They saw from a distance the fulfillment of these promises and saluted them, literally, while acknowledging that they were foreigners and sojourners on the earth, resident aliens. These are resident aliens that desired no green card in this world. Consequently, these exemplars of faith exhibited the essence of faith which is the substance and reality of things hoped for. For them, and for us, the hoped-for things were, and still are, things promised by God who is utterly reliable and uncompromisingly faithful. Abraham is referred to once again as he who had received the promises. Ho pas epangelias anadexamenos. 
in Hebrews 11:17. Our meditation is on the promises. Hebrews 6:15 and Hebrews 11:33 refers to a class of champions of faith of the past who quote obtained promises. That means that they experienced the promises in hope by faith. The assurance of things hoped for. The promises can be experienced in hope. Or they can be experienced in a final realization. In bodily resurrection, of course, in their completion. We have obtained precious faith, equally precious with the apostles. Our faith isn't less than their faith. Faith is a gift from God. We have obtained it, and it's precious, Second Peter 1.1. By faith, we experience the promises of an eschatological universal renewal in hope. I'm going to say that again because it's only going to dawn on you what this means as you meditate. By faith, we experience the promises of an eschatological universal renewal in hope. It is no small thing to experience the promises in hope. Indeed, that's a very precious thing. For that is to have hope as a stabilizing anchor for the soul in what Shakespeare called, or what Hamlet in Shakespeare called, a sea of troubles. It is to be partaker of the Holy Spirit who declares us, or let's say it this way, partakers of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who declares to us things to come. John 16, 13. The audience or the readership of Hebrews is best described as wanderers in this world. But don't get me wrong and don't get Ernst Kosman wrong who majored on that in his study of Hebrews, wanderers in this world, just like their ancestors in Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. But calling upon a poem in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, not all who wander are lost. Not all that glitters is gold. Not all who wanders are lost. Not all who wander are lost. It's part of a poem in the Fellowship of the Ring. And so we're part of the wanderers who aren't lost. We're pilgrims on the way to a destination called Oranopolis, the city whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 10.36 refers to the writer's contemporary readers as receiving the promise or what God promised after accomplishing the will of God. So it can't refer to the promise of the Messiah for these readers, for they had already received him. It must have to do with receiving the promised reward, therefore, for having accomplished the will of God, which in turn is evidently by continuing to hold on to the hope of finally realizing the fulfillment of the promises when Messiah appears a second time 
bringing salvation and liberation of all of creation. What lay before all the faith exemplars of the past, cataloged in Hebrews 11, and what lies before all the first century readers of Hebrews and the 21st century readers of that holy homily, what lies before us is the second appearance of Christ. At and after that time, there will be the fulfillment of all the promises of God regarding the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things goes by various descriptive designations, some of which we will consider again very soon. We looked at them early on in our study. I'm thinking particularly of what I call A words, words that begin with the Greek letter alpha, like apokatastasis, tapanta, the restoration of all things, or apokatalaxai, tapanta, the reconciliation of all things, or apolutrosis, the redemption that's universal, or apocalypse, the startling eschatological manifestation of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, or anastasis, the resurrection without which all these other A words don't happen. And there's other A words we're going to look at, and there's two in our closing verses of Hebrews that are going to figure extremely prominently in our certitude and certainty of expectation of a universal restoration. So there are many A words. There's other words like palingenesia, which if you put into English means literally again Genesis. So it's an A word, but this time it's an English A word. Palingenesia. I'm going to look at these words in a future increment, I think. I'm already hammering it out somewhat in my sculpture studio which is my study, and hopefully that'll be coming. So previews of coming attractions. So what lay before all the faith exemplars of the past, what lies before us in the present, is the second appearance of Christ. At and after that parousia will be the fulfillment of all the promises of God regarding the restoration of all things. You can look for the rapture, I'm looking for the restoration of all things. And again, that restoration of all things goes by various descriptive designations. The one most significant to me is anakephaliosis, pantone, Ephesians 1.10, which I find I'm a little more enamored of that term even than apocatastasis from Acts 3.21. So the restoration of all things goes by various descriptive designations, and we're going to take a look at them again. And the expanding upon each one of these would be volumes. So we're only going to do a little bit on each one of them down the road. The exceeding great, and we continue our meditation on the promises, however. The exceeding great and precious promises, referred to in 2 Peter 1.4, have to do with being partakers of the divine nature something that will be fully apprehended on a macrocosmic scale when Jesus Christ, who comprises all of uncreated divine reality bodily, 
Colossians 2.9, fills up all of created reality with himself in Ephesians 4.10. And when God is all and in all in the universal perichoresis, another word for that universal apocatastasis, 1 Corinthians 15.28. God who is pleased to dwell in Jesus will be pleased to dwell in all of the creation when it is filled up with him. Now, the differentiation of consciousness that comes about regarding the promises in Hebrews is our recognition of the distinction between the promises themselves, which are indeed precious, even when held in hope, and the difference between those precious promises held in hope and their eschatological completion, which for all the exemplars of faith in Hebrews, were still future while they moved about on this earth. And for us, they are still future who are on this earth at present. The reason for this is that God has a plan for all of those who made up the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11.39, not one of whom received what was promised in its ultimate fulfillment, while on the, in this life and on this earth. They did not receive the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, therefore they did not become complete without us. Now there remains the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. There remains the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. Though already realized in future world. Now here's where your mind may be boggled, if not totally blown. There remains the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, though the promise is already realized in future world. By which all of humanity from every historical era and through the course of all time will be living contemporaneously. Eternity, by definition, for the day of God is when all times exist simultaneously. And that's when all time becomes simultaneous through the resurrection of the dead. This will be the actual realization of human destiny, dreamed of by dreamers and utopians, who never would realize their dream and never will, because they didn't look for it by faith in God through Jesus Christ, but through confidence in human attainment. These dreamers are unintelligent, unreasonable, and irresponsible sleepwalkers who may be woke in their dreams, but not awake in reality. We are continuing a meditation on the promises without intending offense. What is a little mind-boggling to think about is that people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Sarah, Deborah, et al., are already receiving what was promised in future world. Hebrews 6.12, Hebrews 12.22-24. And they are experiencing it with us. Wolfgang Smith, in his astonishing book called Physics and Vertical Causation, the end of quantum reality, 
teaches us that, and, and incidentally, I love reading books like this and like Lonergan's treatise in Insight because the prevailing so-called wisdom of people like Albert Einstein and Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx is being challenged by the bleeding edge of scholarship and by, I think, divinely permitted enlightenment. So again, Wolfgang Smith, in his astonishing book called Physics and Vertical Causation, and thank you, Tom Bonnet, for that gift of that book, The End of Quantum Reality, teaches us that, quote, the spatial bound ceases to apply above the corporeal plane. In that groundbreaking book, and I would call very few books groundbreaking, Method and Theology is one by Lonergan. This one's one by a believer, Wolfgang Smith. And, of course, Lonergan was a believer too. But in Smith's groundbreaking book, he also wrote that, quote, the spiritual or the celestial plane of existence is not subject to the two bounds of the integral cosmos, the corporeal by space and time, the subtle or intermediary by time alone. Now, how I would illustrate that is this way. When Moses and Elijah were observed by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, these three, these really... Moses and Elijah were perceived by this trio of apostles as if in space and time. But Moses and Elijah were in a realm which is subject neither to the corporeal or the intermediary bounds. They are above the corporeal plane in what the Hebrews author calls future world. Hebrews 1.6 and 2.5, or the age to come, Hebrews 6.5. When we speak of future world, we must be considerate, therefore, of the fact that what is future to us is present to God and to all the angels of God and the spirits of justified people made perfect. Given this reality... And I'll put the question to you who are listening, if you are listening. Given this reality, can someone be judged to be wrong or heretical if they aver that we are resurrected at the moment of death? We'll let the question hang. There is a distinction even within those who have, have and hold the promises in hope. It's one thing to merely receive and then to have the promises of God. It's another thing to fully embrace them so that one becomes completely assured of their inevitable fulfillment. It's like marrying the promises and being one flesh with them. Some people have lists of all of God's promises. That's good. They post them on social media. They paste them among collages. They put magnets on their fridge with the promises of God on them. They have the promises of God. And there is certainly no wrong in doing that. 
But it's yet another thing to experience the promises of God in hope to the point of becoming fully assured of them with an unshakable confidence that floods our interior central being. And this is to have not just hope, but the full assurance of hope, pleroforia, elpidos. We continue our meditation on the promises of God, part two, by saying all of the promises of God are yes, and they have their amen in Jesus Christ. We've said that before. The final and ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God is what the old-timers called the beatific vision. When we see Jesus as he is in both his divine essence as Yahweh and in his true glorified humanity, and when we become like him. 1 John 3, 2, Ephesians 4, 13. 2 Peter 1, 4 again, and I refer to this verse so often in my mind and thinking and thoughts. 2 Peter 1, 4 calls this being partakers of the divine nature. It's something we realize in part through the bath of regeneration. John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. It's something to be enjoyed fully in the cosmic regeneration, the again Genesis spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 19, 28, where he predicted that his 12 fumbling apostles will be seated on 12 thrones, administrating justice to the 12 tribes of Israel. In Hebrews 6, 13, Abraham received the promise of an innumerable seed, a thing that would be brought about only by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which was typified in Abraham's reception of Isaac from the dead in Hebrews 11.19. Hebrews 6.11-12 points to the full assurance of the promises and also to their completion, their full realization. According to 2 Peter 1.4, God has given us or granted us his exceedingly great and precious promises. You may have and hold something, but to have and hold something precious is another thing. The word that Peter deploys there is epangelamata. Epangelmata. We'll see that in print. It stands for the usual epangelia, as used in Hebrews 6.12 and 6.15 and a little later on in 6.17. In Hebrews 7.6, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the one who had the promises. The promises of God are related to God's pronouncements or affirmations of what he intends to do. They are expressive of his great intention, which is embodied in Jesus, his unspared and freely given monogenes. There's only a seeming contradiction between Hebrews 6, 12, 15, 17, and Hebrews 11, 13, and 39. If we look to the climactic passage in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, we can receive the insight, if we're open to it, if we have ears to hear, eyes to see, 
we can receive the insight that the exemplars of faith are even now enjoying in future world the final fulfillment of the promises due to the accomplishment of the once and for all self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They are even now experiencing the heavenly blessings that await us who await the second appearance of Christ. But they are not experiencing that blessedness apart from us. Go and learn what this means. Hint. The spiritual and celestial plane is not bound by the corporeal and the temporal planes. The faith heroes of our past were made partakers of the heavenly blessings in our future and their present before Christ's return from heaven, which to us is still future and imminent. The upshot of all this is this. We can experience the promises in hope and in ever-increasing degrees of assurance. And by so doing, we begin to have an advanced realization of future world and to experience in some meaningful measure the power of the coming age. We've all had this experience. We've had it in church. We've had it in these, these hallways of this building that I like to call the Alamo. Almost a preview and an advanced realization of the coming age in fellowship, in love, in hope, in rapport, in conversations, in faith. We have, and sometimes you don't even think of it, and sometimes we do, we go away thinking, now that's a preview of future world. In fact, that's an advanced realization of it. Thank you for giving that to us, Father. And I pray that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, will give you many advanced realizations of future world in your own mind and hearts and souls, in your marriages, your family, your family gatherings, your homes, your home Bible studies, your DVD groups, your churches, your little fellowships, and your large fellowships, an advanced realization of future world. And you can have that sometimes alone in your meditation, alone in your meditation now on the promises, alone in your study, alone in prayer, or together with others in prayer. So again, the upshot of all this, we can experience the promises in hope and in ever-increasing degrees of assurance. And by doing that, we begin to have advanced realizations of future world and even to experience in some meaningful measure the power of the coming age. I'll close the second part of our meditation on the promises by repeating the closing thesis of part one because of what I deem to be its importance. It's what, what I call an atlat on the level of our time thesis. It's the application of the experience of God's promises in hope on the level of our time 
Atlat thesis. And again, this is a repetition from the part one of this meditation. The promises together constitute the guaranteed salvific eschatological future, or we could say redemptive eschatological future of the human race and of human society in Uranopolis, the heavenly city. Uranopolis is the city whose architect and builder is God. But the one who is the architect and builder of Uranopolis is also called the one who builds all things, the universe of proportionate being in Hebrews 3, 4. Therefore, the city called Uranopolis is not just a metropolitan or urban entity like Paris or London, Beijing or Sydney, Stockholm or Berlin or Moscow. It's rather the glorious consummation of human society. That's what Uranopolis is, the glorious consummation of human society when all things are gathered up and unified in God's Messiah, Jesus. This discloses, therefore, the ultimate value of Hebrews to us in the 21st century. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus by a capacity of intellective perception created by the Lord in Proverbs 20, verse 12, and of having the hope in us that is in seeing him with the eyes of the heart. In seeing him with the eyes of the heart, we see not only our own destiny completed in honor and glory, but the destiny of all humanity over the course of all time. So both the hearing ear, let him that has an ear hear and be attentive, both the hearing ear and the seeing eye belong to the spiritual person because the Lord created in us the hearing ears of the heart to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and the seeing eyes of the mind to see Jesus as human destiny personified and embodied at God's right hand. Hearing ears and seeing eyes belong to the spiritual person and I hark back to Increments 148 and 149 in the three, well, the dialectics of history. Because hearing ears and seeing eyes belong to the spiritual person, not the natural or the carnal person. They are part of the new creation, and they belong to the new man, the new humanity, the new self. Ton kainon anthropon. Ephesians 4.24, also called ton neon, N-E-O-N, anthropon. Not the old self. The old self is the false self that gets along with the deceptiveness of this evil age and its deceptive appearances and its hypocrisies. The old self is the same as the 
carnal person, sarkikos, the kind of person that gives momentum to historical decline. The new self is the true self. It's the same as the spiritual person who gives momentum to historical renaissances and the redemption of time, even now in our own time, the redemption of time from evil, one day at a time. We're talking now about the spiritual person. We're talking about the new man, the new person, the new self. We're talking about the kind of person that contributes to the redemption of history. Not by their own efforts, oh no, not at all, but by the grace of God, operative in them, and by the power that subjects all things in the universe to Christ, already being operative in them toward the redemption of time. So thank you, Father, for this meditation. And may it come across and may it, in fact, evoke in the listeners and the hearers, may it evoke in us an advanced realization of future world. And we know that to be oriented to future world is to be occupied with Christ and therefore not preoccupied with ourselves or the circumstances of this age. We thank you in Christ's name for all these things, and I thank you for a receptive audience today. In Jesus' name, amen.